Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I think one of the things with writing right to the end is it was a, it was almost like a moral imperative to keep looking and keep speaking and not avert my gaze you know i think we're very we're very good at glossing over and fudging our endings you know it's all so too difficult but actually i felt it was imperative that i did not do that and that's why you know the book goes right to the point of tom's death and it starts right at the point of his diagnosis it has that real kind of time frame almost like it's kind of activated by something i just felt like it was it was really beholden to me to be very I don't know, very sort of accurate and very careful and not fudge anything, you know what I mean? And I don't know, it, it was it was a really amazing time also. I think it was a, and I think that was an important thing to say. It was a really amazing time. I wouldn't have been able to write anything if it had not been also, as much as it was completely catastrophic and disastrous, really, really wonderful. Is there a limit to love? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company. Falling in love makes us sweat and scream. But does romantic love last forever? And can marriage fulfill all our basic needs and desires? On tonight's show, writer and philosopher Ronald D'Souza talks me through how and why we partner and that crazy thing called love. And what happens to the present tense when you or your partner suffers a trauma or illness? Visual artist and writer Marion Coots describes why we meet more straight talking on how to deal with death and dying. This is a show about love and loss, jealousy and forgiveness, and one woman's remarkable courage in learning to let go. But first, why do we fall in and out of love, and do we need to rethink how we partner? Love is fickle, love is forever, love is heaven, love is hell. Love is war, some say God is love, and surely both have much to answer for. The words of Ronald D'Souza from his latest book, Love, A Very Short Introduction. Ronald Bond D'Souza is Professor of Philosophy at the University of Toronto. Born in Switzerland in 1940, educated at Princeton, his books include The Rationality of Emotion, Emotional Truth and Why Think. Well, Ronnie's latest read is a very snappy yet expert introduction to 2,000 years of human thinking on love. This book will make you laugh, cringe and revise some of your more memorable, if not hairy, experiences of love. In Love, a very short introduction, Ronnie argues love is way more complex than conventional thought would have us believe. D'Souza writes not everyone experiences love in the same way, that sex is not a defining feature of love and that we all want to be loved for the stories we tell both to ourselves and to others. Ronnie starts his neat little read with an intriguing quote from American philosopher Robert C. Solomon, who writes, Love is in fact quite ordinary, less than cosmic, not the answer to all life's problems, and sometimes calamitous. I asked Ronnie, do we ask too much of love? Yes, indeed. We ask much too much of love because the concept covers very different sorts of things. And we tend to mash them all up into one and to expect that unless we have them all, then we have nothing. 
I think that there are what you might call components or forms of love, which, for one thing, they have very different shelf lives, you might say. They have different durations. And in particular, what I call, following uh, Dorothy Tenoff, who invented this word, limerence, she invented the word limerence because extreme romantic love is sort of a mouthful. And when we talk about love, we sometimes talk about that kind of extreme, romantic, obsessive, passionate love. So it's nice to have a, a shorthand for that kind of love, limerence. Very different from the kind of rather quiet attachment that uh, people can have to one another. And that isn't necessarily tied to the erotic or to the sexual. So that, of course, parents for their children and children for their parents have very often or normally even enduring attachment, but it doesn't have that kind of passionate, excited, obsessional sort of character. But Ronnie, I'm just wondering though that our expectations of being in love, our expectations of being in this fulfilling partnership and what we demand of that, whether it's intellectual, sexual, psychological, all the stuff, all the bells and whistles that go into what we perceive to be a modern day romance, that it doesn't really exist. Well, I think people have what what you might call the Swiss Army Knife conception of love in which the one person that you are going to be associated with for a lifetime, that's a part of the expectation very often, is going to have to supply all of your needs, your emotional needs and your intellectual needs and your physical needs and somehow going to be enough for you in every way. And that is extremely unreasonable because, after all, people are different and uh, they have different uh, zones of connection and different zones of similarity and difference. And uh, one ought to be able to have relationships that reflect what there genuinely is between you and me, between this other person and you and so on, and not require that a person be all or nothing. Has love been an historical, or certainly has romantic love been an historical constant? Or have we been in earlier times maybe a little bit more pragmatic about the partners that we've chosen for different reasons? Like I'm wondering whether it was in war situations and times of famine and poverty, how we view love or the different values that we put in love. There's evidence that uh, romantic love in its extreme form has existed pretty much in all cultures. But there's a big but, which is that it isn't usually, except in recent Western culture, regarded as a necessary condition or a sufficient condition of marriage. So that, as a matter of fact, most of the time, extreme romantic love is regarded as a bad thing because it interferes with marriage. And marriage is a serious thing, which involves, uh, most in most cultures, alliances between families and the whole idea of forming some sort of a partnership that will result in the continuation of a family. And so it has very little to do with romantic love, and romantic love tends to interfere with it rather than actually serve it. And I think that one of the things that's happened in our culture since perhaps, I'm not a historian, but I would have thought that it's sort of in the past couple of centuries that it's become as central as it is in our ideology, we tend to think that love should be the foundation of marriage and that this extreme sort of romantic love is the kind of love we should be talking about. And I think both those assumptions might turn out to be completely wrong.
But it's also the fact that right now, in the 21st century, there are a number of factors that make it even less plausible to expect that marriages will fulfill all of people's needs in this way. I think the existence of the internet, the availability of uh, sexual partners, a click away, the length of people's lives, the sheer fact that people live as long as they do. I mean, after all, when the average lifespan was maybe 45 or 50, you got married and for life, and it might last 20 years. But nowadays, after 20 years, you might have another 20 and another 20 after that. And so what we find nowadays is that many people who believe in monogamous marriage nevertheless marry sequentially. They marry two or three people so that they're monogamous or at least theoretically monogamous for 20 years. But then uh, they separate and they start all over again. And there's another 20 years so that, in effect, the conditions that were predicted when one said, uh, you know, we'll be together until death do us part, it doesn't work anymore in the same way. So do you think we need to maybe rethink how we partner or whether it's through marriage, whether it's through children, whether it's through finances or just through shared experience and what we bring into that partnership in terms of love? Do you think we need to just come up with a new approach to it all? I absolutely think we need to come up with a new approach. And I think that what we should do, it'll take a long time, but I still think that it's something that is possible that exists already in certain, if you like, in certain subcultures of Western culture, among those people who call themselves polyamorists, is that we form partnerships that have specific ends. So I could perfectly well conceive, and this is, of course, made particularly vivid by the now legal existence of same-sex couples, the same-sex couple might come together for the purpose of raising children, And that's what they do together. And they might do all kinds of other things separately. And the fact that they're raising children together doesn't in any way preclude their having love affairs or sexual encounters with other people, insofar as it doesn't interfere with what they set out to do together. Similarly, they might set out to do something that has nothing at all to do with children, that might have to do with some artistic endeavor or enterprise that they want to conduct together. And then that will be the basis of their partnership. It may, for a while, require that they spend practically 24 hours a day together, but it won't make demands on the rest of their lives. And once that's accomplished, then this partnership can perhaps be either dissolved or can sort of fade into a close friendship that will have a different character. So I think there's a certain fluidity that we need to allow in our relationships that will make it possible for loyalty to look very different from the way in which it's now so often conceived as involving nothing but sexual exclusiveness. But we're always going to set boundaries within our love and within that, you know, practical considerations will always creep in somewhere, whether it's ideas of faithfulness, the friendship that you bring into your love or, you know, basic issues related to jealousy. The issue of jealousy is one that always comes up here. And um, well, there's several things to say about it. One is that when you think about jealousy, it's something that you see in children You see children being jealous of their friends even before the issue of sexuality comes up at all. You see it, for example, among girls at a school where girls become 
furious if, if their girlfriend becomes too close to another girl, etc. It doesn't have anything to do with sexuality as such, but it has to do with this idea that that person's attention somehow belongs to me. And it's one of many childish emotions that we actually, when people are adults, you, you no longer allow people to have tantrums the way that they did when they were children. I regard jealousy as a little bit like the sorts of tantrums that children get into, and that uh, when you're an adult, you're expected to just overcome this, just grow up. Well, Ronnie, some people love it because they feel it's a sign that their loved one loves them even stronger. So it's almost if their loved one is so jealous or if it's a friend or a lover, irrespective of whatever type of love that it is, that it proves in some way that you're really wanted. To me, that is absolutely absolutely bonkers. But some people love those signs, (laughs) those very dramatic signs of love, which in itself is very worrying, I would think. I completely agree that I agree that people sometimes think of jealousy as the very sign of love. But of course, uh, I think that it's easy to see that psychologically, this is actually completely false for the simple reason that people can be very jealous of people that they in every other way dislike. The people that they don't enjoy, but you know, there's, there's, a, there's an ennui play. The French playwright Ennui has many plays that are about this theme, but in one, there's a woman who is a, the wife of an old general who has lots of uh, affairs with maids and things like that, and she screams at him, it doesn't matter what you do, you belong to me. You belong to me, and there's nothing that you can do about the fact that you belong to me. And that's this feeling of ownership that has nothing to do with the other emotions that we associate with love, nothing to do with tenderness, nothing to do with care, nothing to do with wanting the other's happiness or the other's pleasure. It has everything to do with the other just being a dependent of me. And I think that that's what jealousy really signals. And as you say, I think it's preposterous. But it's part of the ideology. People learn to think this way. But we people, don't have ownership in our love. We don't own anybody, yet we bring these ownership well, values into exactly. love. Exactly. It's completely inappropriate to own a person. And yet, in love, it seems like in that respect, some people are disposed to treat the very person that they should treat best, the one they love, that is supposed to treat them as, in effect, a slave. It's extraordinary when you think about the incoherence of that. Would you think in your own experience of life, or do you think it's fair to describe love as a sort of a conversion type experience? Because if I look at the great loves in my own life and the highs and lows within, it has almost been physical, social, emotional, in every sense, spiritual, psychosexual, spiritual, whatever word you want to put on it, that it is almost like a conversion experience. It's intoxicating, it's overwhelming, it's obsessive, it makes you sweat. It's... It but makes... remember that these intoxicating characteristics of love, they're the ones that almost never last beyond two or three years. After that, it settles into a form of intense friendship, it settles into attachment, but it no longer has that obsessive quality of the what you call the conversion experience, which I, I think that's, a, that's an interesting term to apply to it. But that, see, one of the problems is precisely that this has a very short, relatively short life. And so very often it happens that people after two or three years saying, oh, 
I don't feel that way anymore. I, I suppose that means I don't love you anymore. Bertrand Russell, in his autobiography, talks about going for a bicycle ride in the countryside and says, and as I was riding my bicycle, I realized I no longer loved my wife. So I went home and told her I was going to divorce. <laughs> the idea that you should sort of somehow discover that you no longer love somebody because there's a kind of feeling that isn't there at this moment, that, I think, if you think about the full range of things that love can involve is completely crazy. And yet, if people conceive love as having everything or nothing, then that's what you get. And the irony is it starts out as freedom and then in some way it becomes bondage, really, doesn't it? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. So how do we come yeah. overcome those contradictions? How do we remove all the irrational stuff and embrace some of the possible stuff? And how do we stop it all from being such a disappointing experience? Well, I think we should start by educating children into a conception of friendship and love which is much more continuous, in which love and friendship are not opposed to one another. Very often, children take it as absolutely axiomatic that you can't love somebody who's your friend, that you can't be friends with your lovers. There are even a couple of philosophical articles that actually make an argument for this claim that you can't be a friend to your lover. And that, of course, puts the two things into opposition, which ought to be simply different forms and grades of the very same thing, which is affectionate ties with someone. And then, of course, I think one should perhaps also educate children into this idea that you can't have claims on another person's freedom that preclude their doing what they want. If you respect somebody and you love somebody, you're loving their freedom. You're loving who they are. You have to love whatever they decide to do. And of course, if that's no longer possible, well, then the relationship will change or will perhaps even cease. But while you love somebody, it seems to me that what you should be concentrating on is the wonder of the fact that this human being is beautiful in their own freedom in the way in which their vitality expresses itself in their own life and to want to put blinkers and to want to put chains and conditions and and restrictions on that seems to me to be just a terrible thing. So we're going wrong by taking a very simplistic attitude do you think to it all and that we're possibly bringing all these expectations and assumptions that we're fitting our loved ones or our lovers into certain types of boxes, whether they're cultural, social or emotional boxes of sorts, that we're stifling it by our approach in the first place. Is that what you're saying? Uh, exactly what I'm saying. And, and, and those boxes are put there by the sort of dominant ideology, which is embodied in, in songs and in stories and in films that always repeat the same themes. And then we're faced with the really paradoxical fact that we think every, any two people are interestingly different. And yet, once they form a relationship, that relationship has to be stuffed into one of a very small number of boxes that are you know, pre-programmed in every way. So that if you don't fit that box, well, then we have to go to another box. But you can't just allow the relationship to develop in a way that reflects the unique characteristics of one person and the other person who happen to come together in this way. And that takes 
looking at people in a way that is open, I think, to seeing them as not merely types, as not merely... And think about the way that people talk about, oh, he's not the husband type. She's not the marrying kind, that kind of thing, right? So we categorize people in these very crude ways. And it's very paradoxical that these crude categorizations tend to have such a huge influence on what in our lives may well be the most important relationships we have, namely the relationships of attachment and caring and companionship and excitement and sexual ecstasy, all of which um, we can have without there necessarily being had just with one person forever. So maybe if we abstract the reason from it all and remove some of the selfishness and maybe improvise a bit more and look at that, maybe we won't have a great erotic romantic love, but we have companionship or that we can have a great feeling of kindness and care and empathy to our friends or to our family members, that that in itself is about love. I think that's an extremely important aspect of love. But it's, of course, that's the aspect of love that tends to get disrupted rather than confirmed by intense erotic love, the limerence type of love. So I, I wouldn't want to, I see, I wouldn't want to ask people to remove from their lives the, the extraordinary experience, the fireworks of, of limerence. It's a wonderful thing to have when you can get it, but you shouldn't expect it to last. I think it's possible to engage in a love affair and to say, you know, okay, this is, let's go all the way and let's have all these feelings and let, let them, but, but we must know, we must remember that, that it's not going to last and it's not going to be a terrible thing when it, when it ceases to be quite like this because then we can retain all kinds of aspects of our friendship even when we're no longer obsessed with, uh, you know, spending every hour we can possibly manage to go to bed or spending every, every hour just somehow in, in this ecstatic staring into each other's eyes and all this. This is all very well while it lasts and while it gives you that kind of feeling. But there's a point at which maybe it's just going to stop being all that interesting. And we could still then have other things in which we can take a common interest, in which we can be happy together. Last question, Ronnie. In terms of love and love and forgiveness, does love mean forgiveness and does forgiveness mean love? Ah, forgiveness. Ah, that's a tricky one. I think there are two views of forgiveness. (laughs) Um, One view is that forgiveness is somehow unconditional, that given all the things we don't know about another person's motivations, how difficult it is to really fathom what their motivation was if they did something that hurt you, that somehow you give them the, the benefit of the doubt even if they are unremorseful. And that uh, I suppose this is sort of a Christian idea. But of course, it's an idea that some people find repellent because it seems to conflict with the idea of justice. Well, the idea of justice is that people should get what they deserve. So this idea of forgiveness, this this perhaps Christian idea of forgiveness, it's sort of the idea that you can never really tell when you are justly condemning someone, because it may always be factors that you didn't really understand. And that's the ground for this view of forgiveness as unconditional. But it doesn't necessarily go with love. It seems to me that you don't have to love someone to forgive them. The other conception of forgiveness, which perhaps fits in better with love, is that 
Forgiveness is something that can be earned to a certain extent by the offending person recognizing that they did something that was bad or that offended you, and that in doing so, they somehow earn your forgiveness. And I think that in the context of love, if the loved one does something that is deeply offensive, it's going to be difficult for the love to continue undamaged unless the offender recognizes that they offended. And if they do, then I think that forgiveness can be restorative, but there will be something that is mutual as successful love is mutual. And for that reason, I think that it's the conditional view of forgiveness that fits better with love. Writer and philosopher Ronald D'Souza. Love a Very Short Introduction is published by Oxford University Press. And the good news, you can buy this handy little book for under a tenner. Okay, let's lighten the load a little and kick back with some lovely Rachel Grimes and enjoy Earthly Heaven.
Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Okay, we're going to slow the pace down a bit and hear about one woman's unique homage to love and meet with a candid Marion Coots. In September 2008, the art critic Tom LeBock and his wife Marion wrote a group email to their friends. It read, We have some troubling news that you should know. A small tumour has been detected in Tom's brain. It's not known yet whether it's malignant, but that is possible. It needs taking out and he'll be operated on in about a week. We don't know yet what any of this means. In terms of further problems or none, are possible side effects from the operation. It's a very uncertain time for us. After the first shock, we are strong as we can be. This is largely because Tom is at the moment very well, looks well, is lucid, thoughtful, writing, working, preparing. Eve is fabulous, as usual. At the time of the operation and after, we may need some help. We don't know yet what form this might take. It could be practical or just to have our friends in contact, to be phoned up, thought of, emailed, visited. We will let you know when we have a date for Tom going into hospital. With love. The iceberg is a powerful, unflinching and heartwarming exploration of death in real time and how one family bravely kept on loving and laughing, despite the odds. Marion's memoir, The Iceberg, has been shortlisted for the Samuel Johnson Prize, longlisted for the Guardian First Book Award, and in late April was awarded the Welcome Book Prize for 2015. This book not only adds to the literature on dying, but raises some very profound questions on death and dying, questions we will all have to address at some stage in our lives. Well, over the weekend, I got a chance to talk with Marion. I asked her to tell me how she first met Tom. Well, me and Tom met, I think it was in 1996. I'd moved to London from Amsterdam, where, where I'd been living for four years prior to that. He was a friend of a mutual friend, really. And he, at that time, was the art critic for The Independent, which he was for a good many years. And I'd sort of turned up in London and didn't really have a job or didn't really have, I kind of knew what I wanted to do, but I was very, it was all, all very new, kind of very embryonic in the city. And so it was quite, I don't know, it was quite unusual in a way that we got together at that point. I, I felt I had very, I was much more sort of fluid about what I wanted to do. And I was wanting to sort of start up my studio and continue my art practice. I was an artist, that much I knew. But yeah, we were together for quite a long time before we got married. And that was in 2001. And then we had our boy in 2007, Eugene. Eugene is, is his name. In the book, he's called Ev. In the lead up to Tom's diagnosis, life was ticking by. You'd all your dreams and expectations. And then suddenly things change and change radically. Can you describe what that was like? Well, it was it was 
Things had already changed really radically. We'd only, our child had been born 18 months prior to that. So already there'd been this huge change in both our lives. You know, we were sort of relatively old at that point. We weren't like young parents at all. So we'd done a lot of stuff and we kind of knew what we liked to do. And we sort of were, you know, were very happy kind of as a couple. And then we had this child who changed everything. And that was, you know, that we were kind of in that sort of honeymoon period after having a baby in a sense. I think for me, you know, by this time, I'd pretty much got a career established in the city in London. And I was kind of emerging from that sort of new child space that you find yourself in and thinking, okay, so what can I do now? How can I make this all work? So yeah, it was at that really quite delicate moment that um, we had the diagnosis, which kind of blew everything else out of the water, really. Would it be fair to describe the iceberg memoir as a meditation on grief but also a meditation on coping and resilience i find it quite difficult to describe actually because it was never that sort of suggests that i had some prior understanding about what i was doing which i really didn't the material which is the writing the stuff itself kind of came about in out of that complete shock and out of that sort of very very serious and frightening time post-diagnosis and it wasn't like i was thinking i was doing anything with the writing it was literally I wanted I was very much aware that in this situation which is sort of burst on us there was a great deal that I wanted to pay attention to there's a great deal that, that was happening everything happened kind of thick and fast and you know a lot of it was utterly terrible but it was also kind of amazing even then and I just think the writing started in a way as a sort of as a way of looking I mean you know I am a visual artist I make films I make pieces of sculpture that was my career and it was a way of sort of grabbing things and kind of almost like in a notational form, because I didn't have time to think about anything. You just don't have time at all in in those kind of situations. So it was almost like making these notes very, very swiftly as a kind of marker to the self, thinking, oh, yes, this, and then this, and then this. And all the notes were just written as Word documents, separate Word documents. And they were all kind of, some of them were very, very tiny. Sometimes the subject heading was the whole of the document. There was nothing in the document. Do you know what I mean? But it was like a sort of like kind of stacking up of things that were given to us to see that I wanted to pay attention to and I didn't know when I'd be able to look at them or or whatever. So it kind of, it came out of that. It was almost kind of like writing against annihilation, really. I just thought we have to, I have to be able to understand what's going on. I have to be able to look. I mean, at at the start, in the first year, really, Tom, even though he was very, very seriously ill, he wasn't sort of unwell, particularly. So there was a kind of strange, almost like conceptual sense that he had this terminal illness but actually it wasn't sort of actual in a way so it was a very very strange situation to be in and I really took my lead from him I mean he was he was just you know I took my cue from him and, and how he wanted to manage things and in a way we did we didn't sort of as I say in the book there was a lot of stuff that we didn't even even though we do talk a lot and we did talk a lot and talking was our kind of main mode there were things which were unsaid. There were things which were, oh, yeah, this is, of course, the way we do it. This is, of course, the way we handle it. It was a sort of a joint approach right from the start. And it was more than joint, I suppose. It involved our boy. And it was the decision was made to involve our boy really kind of very, very closely and not kind of pretend and not kind of, you know, he was with us. He was with us for the journey, so to speak. I imagine, Marion, that trying to stay within the present moment and just sticking with it from day to day, that that presented in itself enormous psychological challenges because not running away with the worries of, well, what happens next? And just staying in that present. If I was to describe the book, it's extraordinarily harrowing in parts, but it's unbelievably candid and beautiful and tremendously brave. Did you learn a lot about yourself by actually writing this? Do you know, I have no idea. (laughs) I have no idea, really. I think this business about 
The sense of time was very, very key. And again, this is something I talk about really early on in the book about on diagnosis, just being aware of, oh, yes, the time conditions that you thought you were living in are totally not the time conditions that you're now living in. Do you know what I mean? So that sense of a real temporal shift and what happens, you know, to the present tense. I mean, the book is written in the present tense. Obviously, it's written in the first person present tense. I suppose I wanted to bring people very, very close to the texture of what was happening very, very close to kind of the feel of what was happening. And there are all sorts of stuff that people say about illness, say that, you know, you have to just have to take it day by day, and you have to live in the present. And actually, again, conceptually, that's incredibly difficult. And, and what does that feel like? And what does that do to you? There are creatures who are very, very much kind of tied to the past. We think about the future all the time. We kind of exist in this constant sort of forward and back mental state, you know, what we're dreaming about, what we're hoping about, what we're understanding our, our life is about, so to speak. That's very much kind of splayed out in time. And so to kind of have a sort of a break on that, a block on that, and I know, I mean, Tom thought about that a great deal, but that was just so extraordinary and what that does to everything else, what that does to your understanding of how you live and what it is to, I don't know, literally to sort of exist in time. And that, how that was very, very elastic, you know, and there's, there's sections in the book where, particularly when we get to the hospice, how actually it felt like we had enormous amounts of time, even though I was, of course, completely aware that we were utterly, utterly limited but what that, your, your sort of perception of everything being so based on context and being so arising out of circumstance, I think that was rather extraordinary to understand and to, to notice in a way. Marion, Tom wrote a diary, I think it was called Until Further Notice I Am Alive. In it, he said that there's no teaching how to die. Mm. And that really comes out in your book because... It's about adapting day to day to all the changes and that you write about that you'd have kind of more placid times when, you know, things were working, you know, you got into routine, a crisis routine, and then you'd have to develop this new crisis and this other new sets of skills to deal with the next crisis coming on. How do you think that reflects on us as a society, how we have no teaching how to die, yet it's something that we will all go through? It did strike me very, very sort of fundamentally that, especially at the time, there's a, there's a description of the book where I'm looking, I'm trying to find a counsellor and I'm wanting a counsellor. And it's, I say I want strategy, actually. I don't want sympathy. You know, sympathy I have from my friends. People can come and sympathise endlessly till, you know, till they're blue in the face. But actually, a kind of, obviously, people wouldn't necessarily know what happens medically. But, they're, you know, in a situation like this, even though it is kind of uncharted waters, there are things which are given, so to speak. And, and it just seemed to me there was a real lack about what the patterning of the thing might be and a real lack of information about, you know, for example, that, the idea about grief being terribly fatiguing. I didn't actually know that. I'd be wandering around thinking, why am I so unbelievably tired? You know, why do I feel like so terrible? Because it is actually the kind of the emotional strain is, is incredibly fatiguing. And that's just something you have to kind of factor in and you have to kind of cope with. But all sorts of stuff about social care and the kind of what happened when Tom couldn't live at home and what happened, what did we do then and sort of things you can access. I mean, there are obviously institutions and people like Macmillan, all that stuff which you can access. And I did. I did access those things. I did when I when I had the energy. But the actual energy to sort of keep the whole thing going is pretty mad, really. And you write the project is not to go down and that we're all novices at this. I was really struck by that because everyone has their own individual response to grief in advance and then with their grief as it all happens and transpires. And within all of that, there's lots of different layers and it's how you navigate those. And everybody does it so differently. But when you say that, you know, the project is not to go down, also not to lose yourself. 
Yeah. And not to lose your relationship with your husband who is dying. And, you know, also to nurture your young son who yeah. was very, very young, who needed a mother. How did you do all of that? Well, in a way, I mean, the thing that I was most sort of aware of was one of the things about the way Tom's illness worked was that he, he lost his language and, and ultimately he lost his mobility. But he didn't lose his identity. He didn't lose his sort of personality. And he was very much fueled by you know, this circle of friends and the sort of stuff we did. And we we felt both that we had a great deal of things we wanted to do. So in a sense, part of the thing about not going down was kind of not allowing the fact of his illness, a sort of very stark fact that it was, not allowing that to absolutely kind of, you know, cut us down before we really needed to go down in a way. Like even in the hospice, the things we were able to do and the sort of stuff we were able to generate was very was very live and I know it was very important for him, very kind of fueling for him that we could have this family life together. And we just we were able to do that, you know, it's almost like beyond the point that you'd think that'd be possible. I mean one of the sort of big sort of polemical bits in the book is about what happened where do you actually go to die? You know, we uh, we managed to get into a hospice in London and that was a place which gave us this environment where we could live together. You know, essentially I wanted a place where I could live, where Tom could live, where he'd be very comfortable, where our child could be comfortable, where we could all sleep, you know, where we weren't like, you know, running around between, you know, between home and hospital as we had been doing in the previous six weeks. And in a way, I suppose I had the very strong sense without really knowing quite where that came from that if we didn't get that, if we didn't get that, then, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to lose him with any kind of bitterness. Do you know what I mean? I wanted us to be together. I wanted him to feel confident that he was safe and that we were there. And that was all those things which you'd think would be a really important kind of invested part of what what happens when you die were quite risky and quite tricksy and quite, you know, we could so easily have not had that. And that was rather shocking to see. I mean, people shouldn't die in hospital at all. They just shouldn't. It's not a place to die. It can't accommodate the sort of enormous, things that death needs to accommodate essentially and I don't just mean practicalities I mean emotional and all that kind of stuff I mean the whole sense of of people wanting to be near I mean we couldn't have had the experience we had and I think the hospice is kind of in a way one of the things I'm sort of slightly aware of is I think the book could only make sense from a position of of me having had that experience I had time to sort of look back. And I talk about it in the book. I said, oh, yeah, the hospice gave us a future. It gave us a future that lasted something like 34 days. And those 34 days, really, that's a really big deal. You know, and it's a big deal in my life, and it was a big deal in the life of our child. It was a big deal in the life of our friends. And uh, it was huge for Tom, you know. So that Tom could maintain his dignity and be given an environment where he could be courageous. He was given an environment where he could kind of flourish, amazingly. (laughs) You know, I mean, he was very good at that anyway. He was hugely inventive. And with all the kind of language issues, he was hugely, hugely inventive. I mean, he was still writing for the paper until something like end of September 2010. You know, and he died in um, January 2011. And if you'd met him in September 2010, you would have not thought that was in any way possible. So there was that kind of real astonishment also, I think, was a big motor of the book. The astonishment about what consciousness is, what it can do, what it can achieve, you know. But obviously, people can only achieve those kind of things if they feel supported and safe. He, you know, in a way, if I could sort out all the rubbish around the illness as much as possible and then leave leave him free to actually do his thinking, you know, because he was still working on his book, the book which became Until Further Notice I'm Alive, he was still doing all that stuff. You know, he was able to think, essentially. He was able to think and put it down. And that was extraordinary. That was what he was best at. 
Now, Marion, you write extraordinarily beautiful and very rawly and so honestly about Tom's last few days and sitting at home on my couch reading. It was extraordinarily intimate, the mood that you created. It was a privilege to read, I have to say now. But you write, at death, the world does not alter. No shift of earth or change of colour. No noise, no shimmer of light. There's no big drama, yet there's one extraordinary drama. There's Mm. one major shift yet everything else is just the same. How do you make sense of all of that? And how did you? I think one of the things with writing right to the end is it was, a, it was almost like, and again, this is a big sort of thread through the whole book, it was almost like a kind of a moral imperative to keep looking and keep speaking and not avert my gaze. You know, I think we're very, we're very good at glossing over and fudging ending, our endings. You know, it's all so too difficult. But actually, I felt it was imperative that I did not do that. And that's why, you know, the book goes right to the point of Tom's death. And it starts right at the point of his diagnosis. It has that real kind of time frame, almost like it's kind of activated by something. But I just do, I do think that was very important, especially to do with Tom working so hard with language and being so amazingly inventive and sort of unusual in his, the way that he sort of dealt with essentially the filleting and sort of dissolution of his language. I just felt like it was, it was really beholden to me to be very, I don't know, very sort of accurate and very careful and not fudge anything, you know what I mean? And I don't know, it, it, was, it was a really amazing time also. I think, it was a, and I think that is an important thing to say. It was a really amazing time. I wouldn't have been able to write anything if it had not been also, as much as it was completely catastrophic and disastrous, Really, really wonderful. Both my book and Tom's book, we, we kind of talk about about the idea of disaster and adventure being absolutely sort of bedded in together. Do you know what I mean? It was like, it was a constant surprise that any of this was actually in any way possible. And that surprise, I think, is there in the book, that sort of astonishment again and again and again. How the sort of these very, very oppositional things, these very sort of paradoxical things can be absolutely knitted together. They're almost like one and the same thing. There's nothing you can put between them. And that was a very extraordinary. I felt there was just such a lot to be said about all that. I felt that was quite important to actually address and to think about and to look at. Artist and writer Marion Coots. The Iceberg and Memoir is published by Atlantic Books and retails at about fifteen euro. Now, for anyone who's nursed a friend or family member who was terminally ill, or in fact anyone who has recently lost a loved one, well, this book will really nourish your soul. It's beautifully written, incredibly honest, and also very warm and funny in parts.